0: On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders. Was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy
1: Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor, and I'm Jack Frinino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. The Stranger made Billy Joel a superstar back in 1977. Three years later, his career launched into overdrive. In 1980, Billy was still reaping the
2: benefits of two Grammy Award winning albums. In March, he took his next step forward by releasing Glass Houses. That album would become a smash hit with a leaner sound
1: that would propel him into the 80s. And during the Glass House's tour, Billy and the band would begin recording live versions of songs from Billy's back catalog. These tracks would go on to comprise 1981's Songs in the Attic.
2: All this activity made the beginning of the new decade a time where the past, present, and future of Billy's career
1: all happened at once. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel in 1980. As I was doing my research on this one, I came to a conclusion. 1980 is peak Billy Joel. It's funny because you usually think of him either as a 70s singer-songwriter or an 80s pop star. And, you know, 1980 is right in the middle. And then you figure, like, well, 1977 was huge. It's when The Stranger came out. It was his breakthrough. Obviously, he's riding high. He's going into 78 uh, with 52nd Street. And, you know, most people argue that those two are his strongest albums, certainly two of his biggest. Um, And then people usually put turnstiles on there too for like sort of a 70s trifecta there. But, you know, in terms of record sales, artistic output, forward thinking, and just a little bit of chutzpah, it really all comes together in this year. It's
2: certainly a much different era of Billy than both. The 80s, he was certainly most associated with being a pop star and then the marriage to Christy, things of that nature. And this is obviously the year where, Billy and the band felt the most like a band to me. And probably that's because of the album that came out of it.
1: So there's a lot to say here. And I think we've thrown ourselves a good gauntlet, but before we get to it, let's read a quick email. This email comes from Robert Nebel. I think we've mentioned him before. I can't remember exactly. We've certainly seen some messages from him back and forth. Anyway, Robert writes, great episode again, guys love the meticulous research. You all ponder the same things that I have pondered for years. I will never forget buying Stormfront at Turtle Records at CNN Center in Atlanta. I was so concerned about the album since I quickly noticed it was not produced by Phil Ramone. Oh no, this could be a major stinker without Phil, I thought. Needless to say, I was wrong. Then I saw Billy the following July at the Omni and was blown away. He was in great shape and he wasn't smoking. Wow, a new lease on life and with a supermodel wife and kid in tow. Time flies. Little tidbit... I used to master Christie's show on CNN called Living in the 90s. She lasted about six weeks in late 1992. My favorite episode is when she got Billy on the show. I saved the tape. It is in the vault. I have some more brushes with Billy. Saw him backstage in 2017 when I interviewed Mike for a CNN airport show. That is also when I met Jeff Schock. Again, great show. And then he mentions too, he says, by the way, I have my own podcast. Well, who doesn't? Liberty is in the second episode. And his podcast is called Tales from the Corners, and you'll find it at talesfromthecorners.com, T-A-L-E-S, Corners.com. First of all, Robert, thanks so much for your email. Second of all, I am excited to check out this podcast. Comes right out of the gate with some interesting guests here. I love his tagline, essays about life and video chats with some of today's most creative people, who enrich our lives on a daily basis. So he's got uh, his guests include Dean Rowland from Collective Soul, Tara Carpenter from the grunge rock punk duo Tara Who. Got somebody that does a uh, tribute to Paul McCartney. Liberty's on there, of course. He's got some interesting guests, and he's got some interesting concepts here. He's got Liberty, as he said. He's got this one that's pretty cool. Video chat, Studying Billy Joel. Professors Josh Duncan and Ryan... I don't know how to say his names. Uh, (laughs) these (laughs) These two fine professors edited an amazing book called We Didn't Start the Fire. Billy Joel and popular music studies. I had the great honor to speak with these two distinguished professors for this special episode. Uh, that's pretty cool. A couple other names, uh, Jake Thistle. I think I know Jake Thistle. You know Jake Thistle? The name does sound familiar. I'm not sure where from though. I think I'm friends with him on Facebook. I might've interviewed him years ago. I have to check my archives, but you know, it's cool. You know, some of these people I haven't heard of just the way he sets them up. There's a, a, a Nashville bass singer songwriter. There's a grunge duo, a very diverse Selection here, so it looks like it's going to be pretty cool to check out.
2: Yeah, that's an interesting cross section of people he's got on this, and that's actually really nice to be able to have a diverse cast of guests while tying into an overall broad theme for his podcast.
1: That's cool. I'm looking forward to that. So, uh hey, buddy, <laughs> you get you gonna send us that tape of uh, when Billy was on yeah. the show? Have we, have we checked YouTube yet? <laughs> Let's see. I bet it's not on yeah. here. I think you're sitting on an exclusive. Yeah. Well, he did say
2: it's in the vault and you know what the first thing I thought of when he said it, of so oh, course thought.
1: it's in the vault. It's a vault. Yeah. But too many people know the combination. Yeah. Hannigans. <laughs> All uh, let's see if I can find this on YouTube. Christy Brinkley living in the nineties. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's on here. Oh, Okay. I'll have to check this out. I think so. Wait, no, maybe not. No, it's not. No, it's not on here. All right. All right, Robert, we won't spread it around. We promise. Send it over. We'll talk about it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) You
2: know, fell off the truck. Yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Like those cheap speakers I bought.
2: Out of that white Ford Econoline.
1: (laughs) No, it's pretty cool. Uh, You know, Robert's another one of these guys. I kind of want to know more about what he does. He was working at CNN. I don't know what you had to do to master the TV shows. I mean, I know what mastering his audio was. Yeah, I don't know that much about
2: video production when you're putting together a show you know, once the editing is done, what's what final step is done to make it, you know, broadcast ready. I'm
1: I'm curious about that. And speaking of podcasts, I want to mention one I've been listening to lately. I've realized I don't listen to a lot of podcasts. I kind of tend to go down YouTube holes with the video essays, but in a very roundabout way, I discovered the Marx Brothers Council podcast. I don't know if you've ever, ever watched old Marx Brothers yeah. movies, but I have not watched them in years. And holy hell, number one, first of all, are they hilarious. Uh, number two, these guys do such an amazing job breaking this stuff down. They have a lot of uh, special guests on. People that have uh, performed as the Marx Brothers over the last few decades. And it's been really fascinating to hear like some guy, I forget his name, one, one person like learned the harp and played Harpo in a one-man show and made sure he did it for real. One of my favorite moments was they were doing a walkthrough of the movie Monkey Business. Oh, yeah. You know, the joke at the beginning, there were four stowaways. How do you know there are four of them? Well, like, we keep hearing them sing Sweet Adelaide. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This is how drilled down these guys get. And I love it. You know, then they cut to four barrels and you hear people singing Sweet Adelaide. And the question was, was Harpo singing? Because Harpo never spoke. And they actually had somebody on that dissected the harmonies to determine that, no, there is no fourth voice on there. It's just three of them. It's not Harpo.
2: Oh my gosh. Wow. That's... <laughs> That's deep.
1: I was like, this is amazing. Yeah, yeah. So check it out. Marks Brothers Council podcast. And uh, if you need a connection to Billy Joel, both Billy and Chico Marx, Chico Marx, if we want to be technical, we're great pianists. Absolutely. <laughs> so let's hop into 1980. Well, I'm three months old. <laughs> <laughs> I am but a gleam. So here's why I think 1980 was this important. It was the biggest stylistic shift, first of all. And one, he wasn't necessarily forced to do. Surely the 70 singer-songwriter thing wouldn't have worked for much longer. But I looked up some albums from 1979 and 1980, and he read the writing on the wall really, really well. And so he dropped Glass Houses at just the right time. To know you had to make that shift and make that exact shift. And he got some shit for it, which we'll get into as well. Among fans, Glass Houses is among the historic run of albums. Without a doubt. The toughest we can possibly be is to say that the best run of albums was Turnstiles Through Glass Houses. Certainly. Some people can argue a little on Nylon Curtain, but not much. Right. And then after that, you know, he has all these pop records. And at the same time, he's also beginning work on Songs in the Attic, which was a live album pretty much like no other from Cold Spring Harbor through 52nd Street. How many years did he toil in poverty, obscurity, and uncertainty? To forge this singer-songwriter identity persona that then sharpens its edges into a New York-based instead of California-based singer-songwriter persona, and then to just have the guts to throw it all away, go somewhere else completely different, and at the same time start planning and recording this very, very unique retrospective live album that bucks a lot of trends.
2: It's a pretty ballsy point in his career. Coming out of an era of the studio session players where you're going to have like dozens of players playing on these records. Yeah. He eliminates everybody but his core live band for this album. And this is the sole Billy Joel album that only has the band.
1: And boy, does it pay off. Now, before we jump into what This sounds like exactly... I want to put this into context. I want to read off some of the top albums of 1979 and then 1980 so you can see this contrast. Now, this isn't necessarily the best or whatever. This is literally just typing into Google, 1979 albums and 1980 albums. London Calling by The Clash. seminal punk album, but not really that punk and not really that new wave. Had a lot of acoustic guitar on it. Had a very organic feel to it, really. Tusk, Fleetwood Mac. Overblown, but definitely in the singer-songwriter vein. Off the Wall, Michael Jackson, disco, yep. essentially. Yeah. Pink Floyd's The Wall. I guess certainly the most personal thing they did, I guess you would say. Certainly plenty of 70s bloat on sure. that one. And I'll fight you over it if you... <laughs> I'll fight anybody over that. Breakfast in America by Supertramp. That's pretty damn 70s. Oh, yeah. Armed Forces by Elvis Costello. Russ Never Sleeps. You're forward-thinking guys. Now you got Damn the Torpedoes by Tom Petty. Known best for the 80s, but still a pretty uh, 70s sounding record. ACDC Highway to Hell, so you still have Bon Scott. Uh, Eagles, The Long Run. Bad Girls by Donna Summer. Float Train Common by Bob Dylan. Still pretty, you know, 70s singer-songwriter-ish. Communique by Dire Straits. I would say the Dire Straits is pretty unique, very 70s sounding. What I'm saying is you got a lot of stuff that's still very 70s. Now, you do have Blondie, Talking Heads, Public Image Limited. So you are getting into some post-punk new wave. The Police are on there with Regatta de Blanc. Blanc, however you Mm -hmm. say it. So you're starting to get some hint of the 80s, but we're still pretty solidly in wet drum sound and acoustic guitar 70s. Right. Let's jump to 1980. Closer Joy Division. Talking Heads Remain in Light. ACDC Back in Black. Now they got- Brian Johnson. Scary Monsters by David Bowie. David Bowie at this point is definitely forward thinking into the 80s. Metal Albums. Blizzard of Oz. That's Siren Call for the 80s. Police Are Heroes in Yada mandata. That had uh, Don't Stand So Close to Me. You know, some others that were really 80s sounding. Springsteen, The River, Fresh Fruit for Riding Vegetables, Dead Kennedys. Mm -hmm. I don't know how that fits in what we're saying Mm -hmm. here. Rush Permanent Waves. That's a great example because that's the one where they went from uh, the one with Xanadu, which was their most overblown side album sweet 70s progressive rock, into looking at The Police at that point. Agreed. The one of Peter Gabriel's self-titled ones. Devo, B-52s, Wild Planet there was a pretty decent shift from 79 to 80 and Billy Joel dropped glass houses just in time.
2: A lot of these albums that came out in 1980 were being worked on in 79. When you think about it, those records of 1979 were dominating the day, but yet the artists that had the records out in 1980 had something totally different up their sleeves. And you wonder if artists in general subconsciously were ready for a change and it was just, Happening simultaneously?
1: Or were there a few artists that kind of bridged the gap that signaled the push? It really starts in 77, let's say, because that was year zero for punk. You had your CBGBs bands. You had your Ramones, Talking Heads, and Blondie. Yeah. You know, now I'd really love to know if Billy was aware of those bands. Yeah. Because, I mean, he was in New York. He was sure he was touring, yeah. but...
2: What I'd noticed out of Billy watching interviews and listening to the music over the years, especially late 70s to late 80s, that like 10 year, maybe 15 year period, I feel like Billy was very aware of what was going on musically. But then as he started to shut off his recording career, he Mm -hmm. shut off his awareness to it.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, Billy was also 40 when he stopped recording or a little older than that. It's usually when you get into your uh, old man, that's not music phase. If you listen to Glass Houses, I mean,
2: to me, it's clear they were aware of Elvis Costello and they were aware of the police.
1: They were certainly tapped into a lot of that. They didn't go too far with that. It didn't sound like this year's model. It didn't sound like talking heads. It didn't sound like, you know, burning down the house or something like that. He stayed in his idiom. He just really streamlined the hell out of it is really what happened. And he made really good use of Richie Cannata. If there was ever a point where you were going to start ditching the saxophone, this was it. As we'll see when we get to the Rolling Stone review, not everyone thinks he pulled it off as well as we do. Glass Houses is great, but there's a misstep or two on there.
2: You know, record reviewers have always had a tumultuous relationship with Billy, and Billy was never certainly the hip kid. If he's tapping into a little bit of Elvis Costello, I'm not surprised that they're like crying foul right away. 1980 starts with a callback to the end
1: of the 70s for Billy.
2: The 52nd Street album came out in late 78. From what I'm gathering, it largely missed the voting deadline for the 1979 Grammys, Mm. but was within, well within the window of the 1980 Grammys, which at the time, the Grammys were held early in the year. Funny enough, we're starting out 1980 with the end of the 52nd Street era with
1: the Grammy Awards. Billy takes home Album of the Year for 52nd Street, Best Pop Vocal Performance, Male for 52nd Street, and he's nominated for a Song of the Year for Honesty But Doesn't Win. You can have the love you need to live
0: But if you look for truthfulness You might just as well be blind It always seems to be
1: we recently reviewed Houston 1979, which was in November, and Billy debuts three songs from the upcoming Glass Houses, and these are brand new to everyone. In January, All For Lena is actually the first single. What must Billy's fans have thought, coming from what was easily his most mature album in 52nd Street, taking the persona of a, of a jazz player, having a full-blown grown-up horn section, a song like Honesty, emotionally mature, I think, To go from that to taking the persona of a teenage boy in this sharper, angular, clearly somehow informed by New Wave single. Yeah, what was that reaction when that first made its way onto radio in the UK? I forgot to mention, too, this was only in in the United Kingdom, all for Lena. So we go from that to uh, in February, obviously, like we said, was the Grammy Awards. That was February 27th of that year. I think this is a pretty well-known feature on Billy that was on 2020. Sometime in the spring of 1980. We're not sure the exact month or date.
2: Yeah, and this, by all accounts, seems to be the first major network television profile of him in his career. And it's
1: very behind the scenes. We see him in the studio tracking You May Be Right. Here's another example of change. We we know that His big thing was to play at the piano and sing when recording. So he would track his vocals live. Nobody really knew it at the time that that's how he was doing it. But then we get this behind the scenes glimpse and he's, you know, kind of stalking around the studio, walking, you know, with the mic in his hand, uh, doing the vocals for You May Be Right. Which is what would inform the live show, ultimately. I want to really take a look at that again, because I want to think about that in terms of what we were talking about, about Houston. Where you know he's trying out these moves on arena stages now to see how he can kind of work with the space.
0: That's do. You may be right. Glass Houses is another departure for Billy Joel. He writes songs oh, for I the stage it. now, and he loves to perform. Ho! Oh! you got it. Hey, at the end. Ho, in the beginning. <laughs> but give it to us, Mike. I got it somewhere in the middle. <laughs> Bash me out
1: I think this was a pretty well-known one this is the famous I told my teacher I'm not going to Columbia University I'm going to Columbia Records and he did I know it's like okay come on like if you ever watch old Simpsons episodes and you think like their Kent Brockman is just silly like no go back and watch these old news magazine shows like that was just spot on (laughs) absolutely and it's funny to see him too sort of still looking a bit uh 70s yeah the hair is still big Oh, they got, what's his name on here too? Already ripped. I'm surprised that they had him involved in this, of all people. This is a couple years later, it would have been on Jerry Springer and they would have thrown a <laughs> Yeah, yeah.
2: Well, Billy, we have someone back. Bill Romo was <laughs> right there when they were doing the tracking. And yeah, of all people, it was already ripped. They spoke with probably just to shed more light on in the early career. I love the studio footage because there is very little documented footage of billy joel in the studio
1: i'll tell you what these are not the moves we see on stage but they're those weird stilted movements we sound I'm, I'm laughing because he just gets up right up in the camera these are the stilted movements we see in those you may be right still rock and roll to videos. videos yeah yeah he's got that thing where like he just like kind of puts his shoulders back and he lets his arms fly around like he's yeah that wacky inflatable arm doll At which studio would this have been this might have been the last record they did at A&R. So, you know, if you kind of go back and listen to our interviews with the fantastic Brad Shaw Lee, and he's talking about recording, you know, this one and other ones at A&R, this is what it'll look like, if you're curious. Yeah. If you want to kind of put some faces in the names. I wonder if Brad's in that uh, line of people.
2: I, I see the one with the, the mustache. I think that was Jim Boyer, who's sitting at the board. But it might have been, might have been Brad next to him. I'm not sure.
1: Well, now, let's consider also, in terms of uh, when things happened in 1980, and it doesn't say, but we figured this is in the spring and they have footage from the video shoots for this album. Mm-hmm. So those were done as well. right? And you know what's fun about this too? I'm sure many of our listeners have seen uh, that you may be right. "Still rock and roll me videos plenty of times. You actually get different angles. You actually get a little bit of behind the scenes filming of that. You get a bigger sense of the room, stuff like that. One of the camera
2: shots, you see the other camera men filming and... One of them looks like yeah. he's got a a Steadicam or whatever it is, where it's actually a mobile camera rig where he's moving around.
1: Yeah, that big white one with the viewfinder. Yes. He's got the his house on Long Island that they took the glass house's photo in. That's in this interview, too. Mm-hmm.
2: I do love also the, the other shot at A&R where Billy and Phil are at the piano and they're just working through
1: a bit of don't ask me why. So in this interview... He, he, you know, he clearly doesn't have the lyrics because he's going on, nah, na na. Nah. oh, it's going to be an S eh sound in the lyrics. Uh, and as we know, the way they recorded these things was that they, he would record them full band with bum lyrics, nonsense lyrics. And then he would go back and write the lyrics. But even though they had a good take, a keeper take, they would re-record the entire song so they could play along to the words.
2: Cause that would change what they did. One thing I noticed that that little clip there too is, uh, he does that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So I wonder
1: <laughs> if that was initially just a placeholder that he kept. And it's funny uh, on purpose or not, but the, the, you know, they, they try to ratchet up the tension, you know, moments before they record, you know, like, Oh, Oh, what, what are they going to kick him out of the studio? Like, did they only rent six hours to make the album? Like if nice. he's not ready in five <laughs> minutes, they'll wait till he's ready. If you're not a musician and you're putting this together, it's, it's just that idea of he tinkers with it right up to the point where they hit record. It's just funny, like, us hearing it, we're like, ooh, moments before recording. Right.
0: Some have said the human heart Professionally, Billy's more open. He recorded Glass Houses at a studio in New York City with Phil Ramone, his producer since The Stranger. You are such a prisoner of Is that too poetic? Purple prosy? No, not really. I think if you come out of it, all right. If he comes out. And I am just a victim of Desire. Desire. Here, with only minutes to go before actually recording, Billy's composing a line for a song he'll call, Don't Ask Me Why.
1: Yeah, this is a great one. Go on YouTube, Billy Joel 1980 Interview 1 of 2, Billy Joel 1980 Interview 2 of 2. If you haven't seen this one, it's great. Um, And so after this, we go into March. You May Be Right is released
2: as a single in the U.S., Right around the time the album, Glass Houses, is released. Glass Houses came out March 12th. So now we're off to the races. It's the Billy of the 80s, Chef of the Future. And right around that time, near the end of March, March 30th is when the tour begins. According to the dates we're finding on Setlist.fm. FF. Now, want to give you the caveat that it's not necessarily complete. There may be some things missing, some things added that really didn't take place. But by what we're finding... It's March 30th that the tour really begins at Wembley Arena in London. And there's
1: about 44 dates that go on through the year. And we'll talk about the set lists in a moment, but while the tour is going on, a whole lot happens. There's three notes we have for May, and it's interesting to see how one of these sort of does not fit with the others. One is, it's still rock and roll to me as released as a single. We're not sure the exact date, but it's that month. Now, May 2nd, we're working backwards, I suppose. You may be right, peaks at number seven on the Billboard 100 charts. And it'll spend 15 weeks on the charts. Which that's a really good showing for a single. Now, at the top of the month, we get the Rolling Stone review of this album. And if you ever want to know why Billy tore up reviews, this is a perfect example.
2: Yeah, they were not kind to him by any stretch of the imagination.
1: A couple episodes ago, Anthony Varden was kind enough to send us uh, some notes that he had gotten when conversing with an old critic. Who, you know, admitted that they always wanted to hear, well, they did, and I guess others did, were always interested in the most forward-thinking, what the latest thing was, who was pushing a boundary. And they kind of sniffed bullshit with Billy. You know, like we were saying, he made a very conscious, stylistic shift to sort of start aping the Elvis Costellos and Joe Jacksons of the world. But
2: he was the safe version of them.
1: This review, which you can actually still find
2: online on Rolling Stone, dated May first 1980 by paul nelson glasshouse's billy Joel's all-out attempt at a rock and roll album is just about as convincing and exciting as linda ronstadt's recent mad love though the latter sounds a lot more game and likable than the former ever will Ooh. ronstadt may never understand what songwriters like elvis Costello and warren Zevon are talking about but at least she knows who they are and that they represent something both honorable and artistic. She's not a complete deadbeat. Joel, on the other hand, always comes off like a particularly obnoxious frat boy who's hoisted a few too many while trying to put the make on an airline stewardess.
1: Can I can I interject? This guy can kiss my ass, but he's a pretty good writer. I I, find, I do find this clever.
2: I, I will say that I completely disagree with his <laughs> sentiment and his assessment, but it's funny.
1: Uh, it's, I'm sorry, go on.
2: His profundity is singles bar deep as Danny Fields, Steve Forberts and Iggy Pop's manager said long ago about a Pointer Sisters LP. I thought we invented rock and roll to get away from crap like this. (laughs) At any rate, since Mad Love and Glass House's M.O.R. Pop Rock by Superstars will surely sell millions of copies. Perhaps a new music biz trophy is in order. Let's award Billy Joel a polyester record and hope he'll go away. (laughs) Oh, but there's more. Yeah. This one just keeps going, man. It continues Two rock critic friends of mine, both part-time Joel admirers actually like glass houses because there's nothing overtly stupid on it. Meaning there certainly was on 52nd street, the stranger and all some defense yet in a way, I suppose they're right. Unless you consider the entire album one bland and endless bad joke, as I do. There ain't any real howlers. Just fake this and fake that. Listen to Billy Joel's take on the Rolling Stones muffing a Mick Jagger inflection at the end of the third line and every verse of You May Be Right. While the band dutifully cranks out what it considers raunch. Depressing, huh? Then there's fake Paul Simon, Don't Ask Me Why, Fake Beatles circa their Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band period, All for Lena, especially the choruses, and a god-awful sort of Eagles-go-punk State of the Union message called Close to the Borderline, in which Joel reaches the heady
1: conclusion that life is tough. Man. <laughs> yeah, right? I, I don't hear the Sgt. Pepper's thing on All for Lena. I hear it in the music, the police. Yeah, I, I put the police on it way more. Now, close to the borderline, here's the thing. David Brown's guitar is a little closer to the Eagles, but closer to the borderline is much closer related to Less Than Zero and Waiting on the End of the World by Elvis Costello. Yes. It is the Manhattan version of... Elvis Costello's British New Wave. Less Than Zero was about a fascist. Calling Mr. Oswald with the Swastika tattoo. That was a real person. I forget who it was. I think it's the British National Party. Pointing out that that was a topical song. Billy kind of does Blackout Heat Wave, 44-Caliber Homicide. Like That's that's New York in the late 70s. Continues from here. It says, What's most annoying about Joel is his holier-than-thou
2: sneakiness. His insistence to have it both ways. And you may be right. The singer strikes one of the silliest tough guy poses ever. I've been stranded in the combat zone. I walked through Bedford-style alone, even rode my motorcycle in the rain. In general, behaves like a perfect asshole. Laves his girl for his actions when she points out he's nuts and then sums up everything with the logic of an egomaniac. You may be right. I may be crazy, but it just may be the lunatic you're looking for. You may be wrong for all I know, but you may be right.
1: And we've kind of discussed this before where... He addresses his own shortcomings, but frames it through a woman. It's kind of like, especially the way we're going to read a song now, but it's interesting to see that they were already reading songs like this way back in 1980. This isn't, um, you know, what you see today is not new or retconning. Like, this was already out there. I mean, what's his name? The other guy I don't like that wrote for the Village Voice, the Dean of uh, American Rock Critics. You know exactly who I mean, too, right? (laughs) I do. You know, he was calling out Robert Criscoll. It's like Robert Crisco was, was calling him out for being misogynistic in the, by the late 70s. So this is an, yeah, it's sort of an example of that where he seems to like fumble the ball on the one yard line where it's like, you know, you are this close to being self-aware. But then you sort of hedged consciously or subconsciously and flipped it to the woman instead of in the song addressing it yourself.
2: And he says, I guess what Joel's trying to do here is picture himself as a lovable loony, a teddy bear with a zip gun. But this brand of madness is smug enough to make someone like Art Garfunkel look like Iggy Pop. Oh, for Christ's sake.
1: First of all, you already mentioned Iggy Pop once in here. You got to pick somebody else now.
2: (laughs) Yeah. In concert and throughout glass houses, Joel sings in a voice that is pushy and bossy and whiny at the same time. Like a rush hour bus driver bawling out his hapless, weary passengers. If ever an artist has misunderstood the freewheeling challenge of rock and roll, it's Billy Joel. On stage, he's a lounge lizard, whipping himself into an artificial frenzy to put across some kind of warped notion of what he imagines, say, Bruce Springsteen,
1: Neil Young, or The Clash stand for. Leather jackets, mad dog delirium. What's that? Real quick. uh, Objection. You're conjecturing on someone else's motives. You're not allowed to do that. Right. You're not allowed to imagine what he's thinking. (laughs) Go on. I'm sorry. (laughs) Leather
2: jackets, mad dog delirium, heavy breathing, pure speed. That's probably Joel's idea of how to get down and rock. On record, he cools it a little, hedges his bets, throws in a rotten ballad or two. Here I am again in this smoky place with my brandy eyes. But it's obvious that this Long Islander regards rock and roll as a regards game in which the blowsy, blustering good guy, i.e. himself, can lord it over everybody else and crow to his heart's content without taking any responsibility for his actions. Real kid stuff. The spoiled brat special.
1: I think he goes off the rails here. Billy Joel
2: loves to play the bully. He's always laying down terms, drawing lines in the dirt that he dares you to cross, especially if you're a woman. What's the matter with the clothes I'm wearing? What's the matter with the car I'm driving? He keeps asking and it's still rock and roll to me. The LP's two-pronged philosophical bummer. (laughs) (laughs) All right, that was a good one. On one level, the song depicts a battle of the sexes. On another, it's about rock and roll. It's still rock and roll to me is structured as a give and take dialogue in which the woman talks back in a futile attempt to get the man to shape up. The singer resists, of course, and tries to paint his female
1: friend as flighty harpy. Went one step too far. Like, what's this flighty harpy coming from?
2: It's funny, I never painted still rock and roll to me as involving a woman at all.
1: That hinges completely on, uh, don't you know about the new fashion honey, all you need looks on a whole lot of money. If he didn't say honey, the last three paragraphs could have never been written. And it's, it's incidental, it's inconsequential in this case.
2: I feel like he's speaking more to the younger
1: generation. He's speaking more to the younger generation, the fads, fashion, stuff like that. You know, he's not trying to sleep with anyone here. He's not trying to impress. No. He's trying, not trying to get the girl in the bed. He's just talking about his freaking clothes in his car. You know,
2: it says in Joel's eyes, his reluctance makes him a no bullshit hero. Yet this grandstand play for independence is just another way to put down what he can't be a part of and give himself a pat on the back while he's doing it. If that sounds like a contortionist trick, so does the whole album. Glass houses was apparently intended to be loose raucous and less well-made than its slick predecessors, but it comes out sounding twisted and confused. And it's still rock and roll to me. Billy Joel's so screwed up that he sees himself championing good old rock and roll against what he considers the newfangled fads. It's the next phase, new wave, dance craze. Anyways, it's still rock and roll to me. Is his method of kissing off all the upstarts who perceive that Joel is a lot less than the big city brawler he pretends to be, and a lot closer to being the cocktail launch piano man he supposedly left behind years ago.
1: Let me interject one more time. The problem here is, you know, if we're going to compare him to, let's say, Elvis Costello again, Elvis Costello was the son of a band leader who, on an old live Stiff's album, alongside Ian Dury and a whole bunch of other, like, raucous lunatics, did the uh, I Just Don't Know What to Do With Myself by Burt Bacharach, Well, Billy Joel was an amateur boxer. I'm just saying.
2: Yeah, it's not like yeah Elvis Costello came from this street cred indie background. Right. <laughs> so the review wraps up. Maybe Joel just ought to fess up, forget about being a rock and roller and settle down in the middle of the road. His piano playing is lively. His band is dogged and his kind of music, as the sales figures prove, making plenty of people happy. Billy Joel writes smooth and cunning melodies. And what many of his defenders say is true. His material's catchy, but then so's the flu. Kind of gives him something a little nice at the
1: end and then ends on a good stinger. (laughs) Yeah, he does. He gives him a little like, okay, the guy can play. I like that he gave the band props too. So despite all the vitriol, this comes out on the 1st. The very next day is when You May Be Right peaks at number 7. And then in June, the album peaks at number 1 on the Billboard 200 album charts. Spends 73 weeks on the charts. So Glass House has stayed on the charts almost up to the point where Songs in the Attic came out. So this gives him almost an unbroken streak on the charts.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Which is pretty unprecedented. And when you think about it, you know, the album comes out just after he wins Grammys for 52nd Street. Then Glass House spends nearly a year and a half on the charts. And just after it falls off, Songs in the Attic is out. There was no letting up at this point. Speaking of Songs in the Attic, It was this Glass Houses tour that the 11 songs from Songs in the Attic were recorded. So this is where you had those two eras, which a lot of people, myself included, feel like they're two distinct eras. But these songs were recorded during the Glass Houses tour. And the first of those was recorded in June at the Paradise Rock Club in Boston. And that was She's Got Away. All the dates of the recordings for Songs in the Attic, they all have an actual date
1: this one just
2: says June.
1: Well, as we know now, too, they're not true live recordings by any stretch of the imagination. These are certainly grafted uh, with different parts. One example, I think it was, uh, say, about a Hollywood, the Sparks recording,
2: where the drums and, like, the music is spot on from the Attic version, but the vocal is completely different. So there's things like that. So this, this record was certainly cobbled together, but we're going on the track listing for songs in the attic and what is listed as the recording date and location for
1: these songs it's funny because according to setlist fm though uh if this was in massachusetts this was not in june he was nowhere near there huh well he was he was in rhode island on june 14th and then he was in canada on june 16th but after that it was a six night run at madison square garden at the end of the month then out to ohio and into philadelphia in june
2: What I'm wondering is if these small club
1: shows weren't really a part of the regular tour. Yeah, you have to figure it that way. Like, you know, Toad's Place and uh, Sparks. I feel like these were one-offs
2: when he had a couple days around whatever city he was in where they could do a couple under-the-radar club shows. But I just don't feel like that these were, like, part of the regular arena tour. They were around the dates, certainly, and during the time frame, but they kind of stand out as their own thing. I think,
1: you know, we, we really discovered that like street life serenade was not in the set lists anywhere, except for maybe one or two shows on this tour specifically, it seems for songs in the attic, right? If I may conjecture on someone else's motives, but it seems to me <laughs> that that's what it looks like, but let's look at a couple, uh, set lists to see what a Billy Joel concert in 1980 looked like. So let's start from the beginning of the tour, and this is uh, March 30 in Wembley. Comes out to the Mexican Connection, Only the Good Die Young, Moving Out, Piano Man, My Life. So this is not too far off from Houston 79 where we commented on, wow, he started with Only the Good Die Young. And yeah. he's still got Piano Man at the beginning, My Life is up front. So now we get into the new songs. We have I Don't Want to Be Alone and then All for Lena.
0: This I Don't Want to Be Alone.
1: So imagine coming off two high-energy songs, two big hit songs, even though even if they're a little slower, and then a non-single album track, and then all for Lena, and then number eight now is a uh, Angry Young Man, the New York State of Mind, the Stranger, Sometimes a Fantasy, Root Beer Rag is still on the set, Honestly, Stiletto, Don't Ask Me Why, Close to the Borderline, Just the Way You Are, You May Be Right, It's Still Rock and Roll to Me, Scenes from an Italian Restaurant Souvenir. That's almost half the album. Yeah. And it's got some that you never hear anymore. Close to the borderline and uh, I Don't Want to Be Alone. From there he goes to Wales, he goes to Sweden, then he goes to Australia. But we don't get any set lists for any of this. And then as we said, Rhode Island and Montreal. That brings us to the run from June 23rd through June 28th. So a five-night run at Madison Square Garden. And even these set lists are incomplete, a lot of them. But we see some of the songs that get on songs in the attic street life serenader is on the june 26th date and the 25th on oh, the 24th so he kind of played okay so he played street life serenade pretty much through yeah. uh the master square garden run oh oh okay okay so um hey tough guys hey here's how you know setlist fm cannot be trusted because according to this on june 16th in 1980 in montreal canada he's played we didn't start the fire <laughs> <laughs> there you go it's like I got all my info
2: from Wikipedia. It's yeah, like yeah. <laughs> you're relying on what any j- random Joe put in there. So, yeah. Right. That's why we always give that caveat, Yeah, you know, based on
1: what we're finding, but we can't confirm it to be completely accurate. So that said, let's drop in on uh, the middle of the Madison Square Garden run. Here's June 24th, 1980. So now we're starting with You May Be Right into My Life, Moving Out, Honesty, so that early on honesty like we saw in Houston. Don't Ask Me Why I've loved these days so there's your songs in the attic Angry Young Man Piano Man's now made its way down to 8th The Stranger's still on the set list New York State of Mind Street Life Serenader She's Always a Woman Just the Way You Are Sometimes a Fantasy Stiletto Here's Miami 2017 and Street Life Serenader It's Still Rock and Roll to Me Big Shot Only the Good Die Young Scenes from an Italian restaurant Souvenir and then 23rd is all for Lena according to this Uh, So that may have been either a typo or an encore. (laughs) So this is interesting because the songs in the
2: attic liner notes, Miami 2017 and the ballad of Billy the Kid were recorded on this date. Now I see Miami 2017 on the list, number 16 on the set list, but no ballad of Billy the Kid. But ballad of Billy the Kid,
1: wasn't that a sound uh, check?
2: Yeah, that was my next point is there's, the songs in the attic outtakes that are floating around and Billy the Kid was a sound check song
0: from the town known as I to Bay Long Island wrote a boy with a six pack in his hand and his daring life a crack made him a legend in his time east and west of the Rio Grande
2: What's interesting is they did an incredible version of it live during sound check, but didn't even play it during the show.
1: And it's funny, just looking ahead a little, July 24th, he's at the Nassau Coliseum, and it's pretty much the same set list. Uh, Zanzibar's in there, though. Uh, Stiletto's in there. It's just funny when Billy plays New Yorker, sometimes even Philly, he kind of gets away with that, at least back back here anyway. Yeah, this is a set list of missing a lot of set lists this time around. Billy wasn't heavily bootlegged back then, and so... A lot of people weren't really
2: documenting this stuff at yeah. that time. So, yeah, there's certainly a lot that's undocumented, unfortunately. July was a big month for the Songs in the Attic recordings. I'll just breeze through these real quick. Well, yeah, July 1980, Don't Ask Me Why, it was also released as a single. But that happened in July. But then you had July 5th, Spectrum in Philly, was the recording for Captain Jack from Songs in the Attic. July 10th at Toad's Place in New Haven, Connecticut was Los Angelinos. July 14th, Milwaukee Arena in Milwaukee, Wisconsin was Say Goodbye to Hollywood. July 16th, At the Horizon in Chicago was I Love These Days. And then July 20th, St. Paul Civic Center in St. Paul, Minnesota was Street Life Serenator. July 23rd, The Bayou, Washington, D.C. was Summer Highland Falls. Everybody Loves You Now and You're My Home. So those are the rest of the uh, songs in the Attic Tunes that were uh, recorded. Another big thing that happened to July, because July was when Don't Ask Me Why was released first as a single. In the midst of all these songs in the attic recordings, you had July 18th, which is when Still Rock and Roll to Me peaked at number one on the Billboard 100 charts. Stayed on
0: the charts for 21 weeks. And holding down the top spot for the second week in a row, it's Billy Joel with his first number one hit. It's It's Still Rock and Roll to
1: Me. So the tour ends August 25th at the Joe Lewis Arena in Detroit. And what's funny is the next thing that happens is, or we get an article in Rolling Stone with Billy after that horrendous review, <laughs> just as the tour is ending. It's a little more expository, a little less uh, opinionated because it's an article and not a review. But it is funny that they, they sort of start the year dumping on the album. The album does Amazing. The tour does amazing, and then we get this article instead. <laughs> you know, and then we get this article on the other side. September fourth, nineteen eighty. The title is simply "Billy Joel is angry." In a gutsy interview with Rolling Stone, the Glass House, the Glass House superstar throws a few stones of his own. I always like this uh, journalistic device where you start with a with a vignette or a scenario or an anecdote, you know, to lead you in. I want to set this up by reiterating something you read in the review which was still rock and roll to me essentially is his method of kissing off all the upstarts who perceive that Joel is a lot less than the big city brawler he pretends to be and a lot closer to being the cocktail lounge piano man he supposedly left behind. Here's how September 4th, 1980 in Rolling Stone shakes out. Here's how it begins. His nose was lying on its side, bleeding on his swollen cheek. Billy Joel studied himself in the mirror. His thoughts darted back to the solid punch that had numbed his face for the rest of the bout held as usual at a boys' club gym in in the Hicksville Long Island Shopping Center. It goes on to describe the, I guess, now infamous fight where he broke his nose. My nose was never the same after that, says Joel, who won 23 of his 26 bouts during a three-year period in his mid-teens. Okay, maybe not a big city brawler, but, you know, you're out there in the suburbs doing it up. He says, we were in the suburbs in Levittown, but we were the antithesis of the suburban situation. Do you know what it's like to be the poor people on the poor people's block? To shield himself against a Long Island suburban ethos that ridiculed his threadbare circumstances, Joel fell into a neighborhood gang, wore a leather jacket, sniffed glue, dabbled in petty theft, and drank a lot of tango wine. This stands in contrast to what the reviewer was saying a few months earlier about him being full of shit. You know, like, yeah, Yeah. the, the music styling was, you know, at worst to put on at best a clear sense of this is where the industry is going. Clearly I need to follow it to further my career. I don't remember anybody busting David Bowie shoes about this. So, you know, it goes on to tell some of the stories that we know about, uh, you know, his mom getting him piano lessons, his father not living with him, but sending him a check every month, talking about how Elizabeth became his manager and how that paid off on stage during a three encore performance at Detroit's Joe Lewis arena in late July. Joel was raucous and riveting as he raced from keyboard to keyboard on his multi-rammed set, pressing his fine band the band, to its limits. Billy seems as pugnacious as his face-off stance suggested when he spit out It's Still Rock and Roll to Me, openly taunting the critics who dismiss him as a mere pop phenomenon. (laughs) So kind of really approaches his head on, who who wrote this? This is Timothy White, who I don't know if he knows Paul (laughs) Nelson. (laughs) They also mention in here, I thought it was pretty... When they lead it when they mention everybody from the band, they say in drummer Liberty Vito, a veteran of Mitch Ryder's early groups. That's a cool shout out. Uh, this is pretty long and I, I recommend people read it. We should put it in in the links in the show notes. It's worth noting too, this was the cover story. So this is the first Rolling Stone cover that Billy was on. So what a vindication from that review earlier in the year. Now let me ask you this. I don't know, I guess it's not too much of a question, but it's always interesting when you see a magazine with that much editorial freedom. You know, there's no one guy in charge calling the taste shots here. One guy can write a, a good article. One guy can write a crappy review, which is interesting. However, I think we all know that the more uh, advertisements you buy, the better reviews you get. I don't know if this was in place this early in the game for Rolling Stone. Wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, but by the time I was in college, you know, uh, we had a, you know music reviewers from the local old weeklies come in and, and talk about that very specifically ever see a situation where like back then this is you know end of the 90s where an album would get like a trashy review but still get four or five stars it was because they bought enough advertisements so they could say they got the five-star review from rolling stone but like the actual text is, is disparaging
2: you know i do like magazines like this where you're gonna run the gamut you're gonna have one guy who hates it you're gonna have one guy who loves it And they're both going to have the opportunity to write about it. Yeah. Um, So I do like those different perspectives. Mm -hmm. While I disagree vehemently with the original (laughs) review, I totally respect that he did it. But on the other side of the coin, I do hate how there's some scenarios where a review can make or break an artist. There's been those situations where it's had a lot of power one way or the other.
1: You know, I think it really does not now, though, the more I think about it. Yeah, they've lost that cachet because, you know, and I remember around, uh, I I would guess between 2005 and 2008, I was never really on top of music and I made another concerted effort to get on it. So I was working for a punk magazine. So I used to read them, Paste, Decibel, maybe like one or two others that whatever I would pick up and I would read all the reviews. And what I would do is I would download anything that sounded interesting. My uh, penance was that at the end of the year, I would then buy all the albums that I actually like. So if I got hoodwinked, By a reviewer and I thought the album sucked. That was it. But if I liked it and I had the MP3s, you know, I would still go out and buy it on CD. But yeah, that was the last time I could really think of that I could give a damn because now you can just hear it yourself. I guess that's the big difference. For reference, Glass House is is released March 12th. The review comes out May 1st. It's certainly a few weeks, but you know, if you didn't have that five bucks in your pocket, you know, this may be the first to hear about it.
2: This was the gateway into albums for a lot of people. You know, now it's, you know, hey, I want my record to come out March 31st. Well, it's everywhere March 31st, and everybody can hear it at the same time. I remember when my band, September On, put out our record, we got uh, some local press, uh, you know, uh, one of the bigger papers did a nice feature on us, and and then some of the, like, college magazines did some reviews and write-ups, and they were largely fairly positive, which was nice, but Mm -hmm. I remember... We got one that was a terrible review, like awful. He hated it. And I kind of wore it like a badge of honor.
1: I actually got a so-so review from the magazine I was writing for. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. There's a Metallica documentary
2: from the Black Album. And this is like peak rock startup. They're on their private playing between shows, reading reviews of the show the night before. And Lars is sitting there on video there reading a shitty review of the
1: concert that they just played (laughs) and he was just he's like you know the best gigs get the shittiest reviews you know it's a shame now i can't find it offhand but somewhere i think in the fred shurer's book he kind of talks about that a little about how you sometimes you have to work to keep the crowd going you know and sometimes they're just there for you that kind of thing but at any rate so he gets sort of vindicated by the magazine that disparages him at the beginning of the year few weeks after that Rolling Stone interview Don't Ask Me Why which got released as a single back in July uh, finally peaks at number 19 spent 15 weeks on the charts sometimes a fantasy is released the next month and then in November it peaks at number 36 I guess that was the weakest one of the bunch and it only spent nine weeks on the charts as well but you know a respectable run and I think I think having it on the charts at the end of the year just really makes us a year of Billy kicks off the year by winning Grammys gets interviewed on 2020 releases an album has five singles come out four in the u.s so if we're just thinking about the united states you know these singles just come out all year long during the tour you know make their way up the charts make their way back down almost one right after the other here if you think about it meanwhile the album itself uh goes to number one in the middle of the year really stays up there for a while because like we said it spent 73 weeks on the charts so the gamble paid off he's
2: gone on record to say that was the most fun he's had doing a record it sounds it that goes back to the point of when we were going through the houston 1979 show the big takeaway was when they were playing the three new songs just how much fun they were having and they just felt like a tight-knit little band just rocking and it was like no no outsiders it was just the band and i don't know it was just something about that era was just super special how many other artists were billed as a solo artist did you look through the record in the liner notes and see a photo of the of the guys who played on the record like
1: that wasn't very common that's true Elton John Tom Waits James Taylor yeah even Joni Mitchell I mean until Mingus as we found out from Andy early last year this is probably about the time that it was posed to the band that they could be Billy and the Lords of 52nd Street just like it was Bruce Springsteen in the E Street band but the band chose not to do it yeah yeah you wonder though if if it would have worked There was personality, but there wasn't personality in the E Street Band. And that was mostly due to how Springsteen had framed it for years. They were a very different animal, certainly, than... uh, I think ultimately, while I dig
2: the Lords of 52nd Street, the whole concept and name of it, I just think it worked better staying the way it
1: was with Billy Joel. I think it's that gamble, so to speak, paid off as well, because a lot of people know Liberty, at least. Casual fans know the name.
2: Yeah, certainly. And, you know, back in the day when he would introduce the band, the crowd would go just crazy <laughs> when they he would announce uh, Liberty. Yeah, That's
1: 1980. In the next year, he would put out Songs in the Attic, which after taking this huge leap forward, he would then walk this tightrope of looking forward while also recalling his past. Taking these songs from his back catalog, but recasting them just enough so they felt new. But for 1980, this is the year where I think this is the year that proved that Billy would be sticking around for a long, long time.
2: Oh, you know, there's one more thing I want to put on the 1980 calendar. Okay. December 25th, 1980. Mm -hmm. My Uncle George gives my mom a copy of Glass Houses for Christmas. Origin story. And that's where it all began. Wow. I like it. We're going to have to end it right there because we can't top that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That is the date that leads to all of this. 40 years later. (laughs) All right, now it's up to you guys. I want to know who heard those first singles from Glass Houses before they heard the album. What did you think? Was it shocking? Did it seem like just the thing to do? Did you like it? Did you hate it? Did you not know what to do with it yet? What were those concerts like? Were you at that Madison Square Garden run where he starts pulling out stuff like Street Life Serenader? Did you make it to Sparks or Toad's Place or The Bayou? We'd love to hear what those experiences were like. Let us know.
2: Yeah, to get to see Billy Joel in a club in 1980. Yeah. When he was selling out arenas. Oh my gosh. Amazing. With that band. Up close and personal with that. Let us know. You can email us, as always, glasshousespodcast at gmail.com. And we are on the three main social networks that we've been on since the beginning. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. If you search Glasshouses Pod or Glasshouses Houses of Billy Joel Podcast, you will find us there. We love your comments, your messages, your emails. They are so great to hear all of your stories so please keep it all coming and we'll see you next time we'll see you next time thanks
0: i will be sleeping with the television sleeping, on. With, the televi- sleeping with the television sleeping with the television on oh sleeping with the television on